0: Lord, as we gather today, we pray that you would use your word to instruct us. Use your word to strengthen us and encourage us. Use your word to build us up and to edify us. Use your word, Lord, to turn our hearts and our minds entirely to you. We pray for the children who are in attendance and we pray for their salvation as well, whether they are inside or outside of the womb. We pray that in your time, Lord, that they would come to saving faith in our Savior, our Lord, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. But may seeds be planted in their their hearts and in their minds today, Lord. We ask that during this time, You would give us our daily bread. You would give us what you know we need individually through the preaching and the studying of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, does everybody have a Bible? Does anybody need a Bible? Uh, Just stick a hand out of your window if you need a Bible. We'll make sure we get one to you. you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 40 to 52 today. John chapter 7, verses 40 to 52. This is a passage about division. That's what this this entire passage that we're going to be looking at today is, is about. And as we look at the world around us today, who can deny that there is so much division Most of us in our lifetimes have probably never seen so much division. Now, there are all kinds of things that we could blame it on. Uh, We could blame it on the news media. Uh, They certainly do seem intent on dividing us. Uh, By the way, I'm talking about the media on both sides. Personally, I've turned it all off. Personally, I would encourage you to do the same. So we could blame it on them. We could blame it on social media. Uh, I mean, after all, If you go to social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, that's probably where our divisions as a society are are widened uh, and, and most clearly demonstrated. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could blame all the division that we see on, right? And the general feeling that most people have when it comes to division is that division is a bad thing. But is it such a bad thing? Is it always such a bad thing? I mean, it can be a bad thing, absolutely, when it's not necessary, it's probably a bad thing, and yet I don't think that we could go so far as to say that it's always bad or that it it must be bad. And even this question, (laughs) is it a bad thing? That could be a divisive question, couldn't it? It could divide us between people who think it's okay to have division and people who don't think that it's okay to have division. We can get divided by so many things, and so many of those things are just silly. But here's the thing, even for a Christian, and I'd say perhaps especially for a Christian, there are times when division is actually a very, very good and useful and necessary thing. Consider the primary meaning of the word holy. The primary meaning of of the word holy is set apart. It means to be set apart, which implies what? You guessed it, it implies division. What are we set apart from? maybe is is the next question. We're set apart from the world's ways. We're set apart from the world's philosophies and from the world's ideologies. And the purpose of our being set apart is for the glory of God. And that kind of division is good. It's right. It's pure. It's necessary, even when it's costly for us. And let's be honest, it often is. It often is. And yet most people, Christians included, myself included, most people hate division. And I'm not talking about math. Most people hate divisiveness. And that's why you'll hear people say that it's, it's socially uh, you know, off limits. It's, it's, it's taboo to talk about politics and religion because we see how divisive these subjects can be. And when division is driven by hatred, by animosity, or, or by, by pride, as it often is, or any kind of sin, it is a bad thing. But before we say that all division is bad, let us not overlook the undeniable fact that Jesus himself is divisive. Let me say that again. You heard me right. Jesus is divisive. Do you see Jesus that way? as a polarizing, divisive figure. See, the tendency that so many have in our day and age is to see Jesus as kind of a a hippie figure who who brings people together for a big kumbaya. In one sense, I suppose he does bring people together. He unifies his church, his people, just as a body, a physical human body, unifies the left and and right arms and, and hands. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, though, we see him praying for all throughout history who would know and believe in him. And he prays this. He says in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, one of the things that we have to make note of in that prayer is Division. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed only for those who had been given to him by the Father. He did not pray for those who were not given to him by the Father. So there's the great human divide. There's his people, there's they in in that verse, and then there's the world. Division. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary on John, he says, quote, what the continental divide is to the United States, Jesus Christ is to the human race. End quote. Now think about that for just a moment. If you know what a continental divide is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a boundary that, uh, that separates a continent's water systems. In the case of the North American continental divide, it's the Rocky Mountains. If you're on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, all the waters flow to the Atlantic Ocean. If you're on the west side of the Rocky Mountains, all the waters flow to the Pacific Ocean. Now, You might have this idea of Jesus, that he is just, you know, the the perfect example of religious tolerance. But I'm here to tell you today that Jesus, who is tolerant of everybody, is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is an imaginary Jesus. Jesus had no tolerance for false gods or idols. And Jesus himself once said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, he said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Jesus is, always has been and always will be the great divider of humanity. And the reason is because truth Truth is the great divider of humanity, and Jesus is truth. And churches like ours, where we teach doctrine, we we teach what the Bible says, and when there's a doctrine, we explain it. Churches like ours get criticized all the time, and I know this because I have hung out with people, with pastors, uh, with with leaders in all kinds of circles who criticize uh, teachers and, and churches where doctrine is emphasized. They'll say, doctrine divides as if that's a bad thing. My my response to that is yes, it does. Praise the Lord because doctrine is truth and truth divides from error. We live in an age where so many people have all these these postmodern, very flawed understandings about truth and reality. Postmodernism would have us believe that there's no such thing as absolute or universal truth. There's only relative truth. There's your truth and my truth. There's his truth and her truth. And all of these things may have absolutely nothing in common. Friends, that is not truth. That is not an example of truth being relative. In fact, truth is never relative. Truth is never relative. Truth is always objective and absolute. There's no such thing as relative truth. Truth by nature is always objective. And for that reason, truth by nature always divides. Jesus also always divides, as does his glorious gospel. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. We've seen so much unbelief in chapter 7, starting with his brothers, going to the religious leaders, going to the common people. And yet we did see that some did believe in him. Some of the citizens of Jerusalem did believe in him. Jesus has just given this beautiful gospel invitation in the previous passage to the people who were gathered on the last day of the Feast of Booths. And our passage today will show us the fallout from that invitation. It will divide people, demonstrating the purpose of our passage today, which is that because truth divides, Jesus divides. Let's understand from the outset, however, why Jesus divides. It's because people by nature love sin and they hate righteousness. People know the truth about God and yet Romans chapter 1 tells us that they suppress that truth in sin because they resent the truth about God and they resent the truth that it implies about themselves. People will embrace and believe in all kinds of false ideas about Jesus, the imaginary figure who's just like them, who's basically their personal assistant or their personal cheerleader. He's all about them, but left to their own preferences and desires by nature. They will not embrace, they will not believe in the Jesus who calls us to surrender our lives in repentance and faith. So we start with verses 40 to 44 today. John writes, some of the people, therefore, when they had heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So this is coming immediately after Jesus's gospel invitation. The invitation to all who are thirsty to come to him and to drink. And on the heels of this, and immediately following this, the people are divided on what they think about Jesus. Just as water from the continental divide flows in different directions, people here are going all kinds of different directions. They're formulating all kinds of different ideas about who Jesus is. So taking these one at a time, the first one we see is that some believe him to be the prophet. Now, this is a reference, and we've covered this several times in John's gospel, because there are so many references in John's gospel to the prophet. This is the, the reference to Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. So how would these people who are there and who heard Jesus's gospel invitation, how would they draw this connection between what Moses said there and who Jesus is? Maybe it was Jesus inviting them to have rivers of living water coming from them, and that reminded them of Moses uh, drawing water from the rock, possibly. Now, on the surface, this might sound like they're making a profession of faith, but they're not they're not it's it's maybe a step or two in the right direction but it's the same response as the people back at the beginning of chapter 6 who after seeing Jesus feed the 5000 families said this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world did any of them believe in him not one not one those people all got Jesus wrong and so do these people who are saying, this is the prophet. They're seeing that there's something about Jesus. There's something unique about Jesus. There's something special about him, maybe, but this is not a profession of saving faith. See, in the time of Jesus, the general understanding of the scriptures of of this promised prophet was that he was Uh, not the Messiah, but that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. That is, the the prophet that Moses was talking about was actually referring to the position that John the Baptist had in Jesus' ministry. In other words, as James Montgomery Boyce notes, quote, the prophet was thought to be the one who would point to the answer to man's need, but who nevertheless was not himself the answer, end quote. And so by speculating, by conjecturing that Jesus was the prophet, they obviously believed that Jesus was at least a good man. Uh, They they thought that he was a good teacher. They, They understood that there was something very unique, very special about him. Maybe they even felt like he had something to offer them. Maybe they even believed that he was sent by God, but they don't believe that he is God. They don't believe that he is God, and they didn't believe that eternal life was found and received by believing in Jesus Christ alone. And this is a phenomenon that you'll find within the church throughout church history. You'll see people just like this throughout church history. There will be some who would say the very same things about Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's very moral. Uh, There's something different about him. There's something special about him. He had something to offer the world. But let us, friends, let us never, ever, ever forget that Satan believes all those things too. When it comes to savingly believing that Jesus is God, being willing to come to him to satisfy the thirst of their souls, yielding their lives in submission to him, these people... Are unwilling. But I pray that you would not be unwilling. I pray that you would be willing. See, friends, Jesus did not come to add something to your life. If God had thought that your deepest need was something useful, He would have sent you a personal assistant. He would have sent you a genie in a bottle who would just be at your beck and call and who could do all of your bidding for you. But Jesus is not that he is not something to simply add to your life as if he's simply sent to be helpful or useful to you in some way he is not an accessory like a purse or a tennis shoe or a pair of sunglasses if you have not believed in him savingly surrendering your life to him he is as useful to you as he is to the devil And if you have not believed in him savingly, he is as helpful to you as a judge is to a criminal who is being sentenced to death. Christ is abundantly useful, but he is only abundantly useful to those who have come to him to satisfy the deepest thirst of their souls, to those who have repented and believed in him. So that's the first group of people. A second group of people had a slightly different opinion of him. They say, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the the anointed one. Was this just a conversational piece for them or something? Because what are they doing about that? How is that changing their lives? It it appears to just be a, a conversation piece because while they're seeing who he truly is, what are they doing about it? They're not coming to him as he has just invited them. They're talking that's it they're talking the talk but they're not walking the walk these are people who knew what the prophets had said they understood the prophets they had been raised in the scriptures and they knew the scriptures oh so well and yet their hearts remained far from god it is such a blessed such a wonderful thing to know scripture And parents, it is such an amazingly incredible gift for you to train up your children reading scripture, knowing scripture, memorizing scripture. And if your parents had done that for you, if if they had you reading the Bible and going to church at an early age, that is an incredible blessing. Thank God for that. Praise the Lord for that. But what good is it to know the scriptures if you have no faith? by which you may be saved orthodoxy in the mind having having all the right doctrines in the mind is absolutely worthless if it's not accompanied by trusting submission in the heart If you you have a great understanding of the scriptures and have all the boxes of orthodoxy checked off, and yet don't trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you are no better off than the world's greatest chef would be if he were on the moon, where he or she would have no ingredients to work with and to cook with. You must have doctrinal knowledge, yes, because you have to know what's true in order to know what's false. You must have doctrinal knowledge, yes, but it does you no good if you have no faith. And that's what we can say about this group of people who recognize that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and yet they don't come to him. They refuse to believe in him savingly. You think there might be some in the church who are like this? And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm I'm talking about churches in general, Christians in general, around the world. Do you think you will find people like this in churches? The answer is absolutely. There is no question about that. Every time we see somebody, some leader, some prominent leader walk away from the faith, this is what's happening. We're reminded of this reality. The question is, does this describe you? Does this describe you? Do you have a tank full of doctrine, but your faith is on empty? That's the worst place in the world for you to be. That's the most dangerous place in the world for you to be. Could you be the most doctrinally orthodox Christian on earth and yet not believe savingly in Christ? It's the most tragic thing in the world to have an orthodox mind and yet to have an unbelieving rebellious heart whatever these people here believed the second group believed or thought about Jesus being the Messiah they were quickly shouted down as a third group responds shouting them down saying surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee is he has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem the village where David was again these people know the scriptures they know what the scriptures say They know where the Messiah was going to be born. They know that he was going to come from the house of David. Where were these people, by the way, when many were saying earlier in the chapter, whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Where were they then? Their selective silence reveals so much to us, doesn't it? And so these people dismiss Jesus because they're ignorant. They, They didn't know where he was born, apparently, They didn't know that he did come from David's line. But but here's what we have to see, because there's nothing wrong with being ignorant in and of itself. What we must see is that these people are not just ignorant, but that they are willfully ignorant of Jesus. What is stopping them from going to Jesus and asking him, hey, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Were you born in Bethlehem? The Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David. Did you come from the line of David? They don't. They've already made up their minds about him. They're willfully ignorant. What's stopping them from asking questions? The answer is, sadly, their own rebellious hearts, their own unbelieving hearts. That's what's stopping them. While they knew the scriptures, let us clearly see that they are twisting what they know about the scriptures because they're actually using scripture, talk, which related to the coming of the Messiah, in order to deny Jesus. You can't get that from a faithful reading of scripture. A faithful reading of scripture would never lead somebody to deny Jesus. Unless they're willfully ignorant. Henry Ironside was a famous evangelist and preacher of the early 20th century, and he once said, quote, I have never met an infidel who has ever read one serious book of Christian evidence, end quote. Now, I would have to say that in our day and age, there are certainly some exceptions, but the thrust of his argument is nevertheless true. Scripture tells us, none seek God. There are no atheists seeking God. There are no skeptics seeking God, there's nobody trying to resolve their questions and their disputes with the Christian faith. They'll say, oh, you know, the the Bible's full of contradictions. Let me give you a a strategy for dealing with people when they say that there are contradictions in scripture. Here's what I do. When somebody tells me, you know, I can't believe in the Bible, there are contradictions in, in the Bible, I'll say, can you give me an example? And let me tell you, nine times out of 10, they can't. Because all they've done is they've heard from somebody else that there are contradictions within scripture. They haven't actually studied the scriptures for themselves. Nine times out of 10, that's exactly what they'll say. They'll say, I, I, don't, I don't know, there just are. For the one out of 10 who can give you an example, here's what I will usually say to them. I'll say something like, surely you're not the first person in history to notice that you know there appears to be a discrepancy here. So, so how has the church throughout history Resolve that. How has the church throughout the ages dealt with this alleged contradiction? What Christian sources have you read who attempted to resolve this dilemma? And you will get crickets. Nothing. Nothing but silence. You'll get some empty arguments because when it comes to Jesus, unbelieving man is not only ignorant, he is willfully ignorant. And the reason is because Jesus is a threat to their own little make-believe kingdom of sand. Jesus is divisive. He's always been divisive. He'll always be divisive. He has a way of bringing the full force of the heart's hostility toward God to the surface whenever he's mentioned. With this in mind, we shouldn't be surprised to see division occur when people try to serve him faithfully in our own day, when he's physically absent. When he was physically present, we see that some of these common people wanted to see Jesus seized and arrested. And yet, once again, nobody, nobody could lay a hand on him. Now, as the reader as the ones who are reading what John wrote for us, don't you think it would be common sense to ask why nobody was laying a hand on him? That's, what John, that's why John is telling us this. It's so that we will ask questions like this. And the reason is because once again, Jesus's time, his hour has not yet come. And so those who want to seize him, those who want to stop him are being supernaturally restrained. Immediately after this, John tells us about yet another division that was taking place among the people as the temple guards and religious leaders are now going to come into the spotlight. So let's look at verses 45 to 49. John writes, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered him, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. What a nice thing to say about the crowd. These Jewish leaders want to know why the temple guards, the officers, didn't arrest Jesus. That was their job. That was the, the duty that had been assigned to them and they didn't do it. And the comical thing is they don't know. The temple guards don't have any idea why they didn't seize him. really. Uh, they say, well, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. What kind of an excuse is that? What did they hear him say? You know, what, what was it that he was saying that they were so enthralled with? We don't know. We aren't told. We're just told the reason that they didn't arrest him is because of the way he spoke. And while that's, that's true, uh, that, that's, the, that's the reason they give, and in and, and one sense it's true, the real reason they didn't seize him or arrest him is because they couldn't. It's because they couldn't. Now imagine... Imagine a judge who sends a team of, of, uh, of SWAT members to go arrest a, a suspect, and yet when, when they return, they, they haven't arrested their suspect at all. Instead, they say, we've never heard anybody talk the way he does. He's so smart. He's so persuasive. We, we really liked listening to him. Those SWAT officers would be immediately disciplined and probably pretty harshly, and rightly so, because the judge would be outraged. What kind of an excuse is that? But in this case, again, the ultimate reason, the real reason that the temple guards didn't arrest Jesus is because they couldn't. And they didn't even realize that they couldn't. We're seeing the power of God's restraining hand in action here. Nobody can do anything unless God permits it. Nobody can do anything unless God permits it. Oh, you, you thought you had free will? In one sense we do, but really only God has absolute free will. You can't do whatever you want in his universe. You can't do what he won't allow you to do. And, and neither can I. But friends, this is such a comforting doctrine, especially maybe in a time like this, where you turn on the TV or you, you look at the news online and, and you see how much lawlessness is being practiced. It's not that man is raging and God can't do anything about it. No, he, he could. But what we're seeing is what happened or what happens when God stops restraining lawlessness. What we're seeing is what happens when God stops restraining the sinfulness that man by nature so loves. And yet nothing can come against you. Nothing can come against me as as his children that he does not allow. We are safely in his protective custody. And even if something should happen to us, it's because God has allowed it. God is sovereign and he is going to use that situation, that circumstance for our ultimate good. As you see the nations around the world raging, what's God doing? Well, Psalm 2 actually tells us what God is doing when the nations rage. He's laughing at them. He's laughing at them. Because try as they may, they are as threatening to God as a baby bunny is to a fierce lion. They think they can do whatever they want. They think that they can plot against God and scheme against God and that they'll overcome. No. No. This is God's universe. His purposes, his plans, his promises cannot be thwarted and they will not be stopped. God has the ability to restrain wherever he desires to restrain. But look at how these religious leaders respond. They say, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, have they? I mean, their argument basically boils down to you shouldn't believe in him because we don't. This is the lowest form of intellectual snobbery. But here's the irony. Here's the irony of this whole situation. It doesn't actually demonstrate the authority of these religious leaders. It underscores Christ's authority because the guards weren't acting under the authority of the religious leaders, rather their, their actions were determined by the authority of Christ. As Charles Spurgeon notes of this, he says, quote, they could not take him for he had fairly taken them, end quote. Now, one of the things that we see here, and we see this throughout the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the power of Jesus' words, just his words. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, a Roman centurion guard comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then we get down to verse 13 and read, and Jesus said to the centurion, go and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment by the power of Christ's word. Mark chapter four, Jesus and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and a fierce storm comes up, a deadly storm sets over them. Jesus is sleeping right through it, but the disciples are sure that they are about to die. So they wake Jesus up, pleading with him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Mark tells us, and he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And the response of the disciples is to become very afraid as they say to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, the power of Christ's words. Luke chapter five, a leper comes to Jesus and he asks to be healed. And Jesus simply says, I'm willing, to be cleansed. And Luke follows that up by telling us, and immediately the leprosy left him. Maybe my favorite example of the power of Jesus' words is seen later on in this book in, in John, John chapter 18, when the Roman guards and the chief priests and the Pharisees come to arrest Jesus on the night of his betrayal, Jesus greets them by saying, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds, I am he. And we're immediately told that as he said these, these words, which were a claim to his own deity, a claim to his own divinity, that they all drew back and fell to the ground. He says, I am he. And they're, they're swept off their feet by the power of Jesus's words. So it's no wonder these temple guards couldn't arrest Jesus. He simply spoke and immediately their thoughts and their intentions were subdued. And this drew, of course, predictably, this drew the contempt of the leaders who curse the crowd for the failure of the guards. And I'm pretty sure that we're intended here to see the love of Jesus in the previous passage where he invites sinners to come to him freely in juxtaposition to the hatred of the religious leaders. Jesus desires to bless them. He invites them to come to him and to find satisfaction for the depths of their souls in him. And the Jewish religious leaders simply curse them as they look down their noses at them. Look at all the division that Jesus has caused and created among the people, the Jewish leaders and the temple guards. We shouldn't be shocked to be seen as divisive either, by the way. You and I, it shouldn't surprise us when we're seen as being very divisive when we are faithful to Christ because that's the effect that Jesus has always, always had on people. There's one more division, though, before we, finish this, uh, before we finish this passage, and this is a blessed division. Not all of the Pharisees are in agreement. There's one who calls for the Pharisees to keep themselves in check. Let's look at verses 50 to 52. John writes, Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, Said to them, "Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is what he is doing." Does it? They answered him, "You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee." In other words, they're telling him, "Get out of here." But notice that John wants to wants us to make a connection between this passage and the conversation that Jesus had at the beginning of chapter three with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. That's, that's the words used to describe Nicodemus in John 3, 1. So Nicodemus had some push. He had some influence. And he uses it right here to remind the Pharisees that they aren't supposed to judge a man without having a hearing at which he's allowed to explain himself. So the Pharisees are are getting ahead of themselves, but they don't care. But Nicodemus does. Nicodemus does. His conscience has been touched by Jesus. By pointing out the corruption within the Pharisees, Nicodemus has given them a sound and just rebuke. He's not asking them to believe in Jesus, by the way. He's simply asking them to give him, to give Jesus... A fair hearing. And so they fire back at Nicodemus, accusing him of showing partiality, which is kind of ironic because that's the very thing that Nicodemus was rightfully accusing them of. The fact is that their refusal to abide by their own rules exposes the depths of sinfulness in their own motives. They couldn't claim to be faithful to God in the performance of their duties, but they, they don't care. They don't care. Friends, the same thing happens today when we try to talk about Jesus with people. People will not give him a fair trial. So people will revert to saying stupid things like, well, Jesus said, judge not. Twisting the scriptures by doing so, I might add. Just like the people here who use the word of God to deny Christ. See, people have this idea of showing tolerance toward people who believe differently, but they aren't willing to be tolerant of Jesus or of those who desire to be willing to obey Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus. We must see how vividly these Pharisees represent not faithful Christians, but the way that sin corrupts the ability of unbelieving man to be just and fair and open-minded and tolerant when it comes to Jesus. Why do you think people so often would call us Pharisees whenever we try to faithfully serve Jesus or be obedient to his commands? See the irony there? They think that the the Pharisees were people who took God's commands very seriously. No, the Pharisees were people who were so hard-hearted toward God and who loved their sins so much that they would not give Jesus a fair hearing or consideration, just like those who would shun our evangelism by calling us Pharisees. Friends, in this life, if you... Strive to be faithful to Jesus as you ought. It will cause division. There is no way around that. While there are all these silly things that ultimately don't matter, that divide us, there's nothing silly about faithful obedience to Christ. This is very, very serious business. He spoke of a day to come in which he will divide humanity permanently for good. In Matthew chapter 25, he says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And we go on to read what he says to the accursed ones, to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, in the end, humanity will be divided forever. Families will be divided forever between those who believed in Christ and enter into his eternal rest in him and those who refused to believe in him and who will be thrown into hell where they will be in eternal conscious torment. And they will be there forever. And the truth is that right now, friends, right now, now at this very moment, your life is flowing in one of these two directions to one of these two eternal destinations, even right now today at this very moment. If you have never savingly believed in Christ and you're just now being made aware of the importance of doing so, it is not too late. It is not too late for you to come to Jesus who will satisfy the deepest needs of your soul. He will welcome you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will take your sin as far as east is from the west, and he will cover you in his own perfect righteousness. So come. If you haven't already, come and cross this this great divide. Come and find life. Come and find peace with God by believing in Jesus. Pride prevented the Pharisees from coming to Jesus. I pray that you would not let it do the same to you. For those who have trusted in him savingly, you know what I mean when I say that being obedient to him, being faithful to him will cause division. People will call you narrow-minded. They will call you legalistic, bigoted, homophobic, uh, racist, unscientific, and, and the list just goes on and on and on. But this is the same way that people treated Jesus. And if they treated Jesus this way, we can expect to be treated the same way that he was. Count it. As a blessing, count it as a privilege whenever you encounter various trials, as James says. But what he promises, what God promises, what Christ promises to the church in Smyrna, which was a suffering, persecuted church, is the same thing that he promises to all of us who suffer and are ridiculed for Christ. And that's this be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's from Revelation chapter two, verse 10. I pray that that would describe all of us here right now, today. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have set us apart from the world. Thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, this is a a difficult place to be in this world and we know that you know, because you know what Jesus endured. And if he endured that, we are not better than our master we know that we can expect to be treated the same way. And so what we ask Lord is for strength, for strength and for courage to find comfort somehow in division, in being set apart from even people we love and desire to know and believe in Christ. And so we bring them in the silence of our hearts, Lord. Right now, we bring them before you. People that we know who don't know you, who aren't reconciled to you by faith in Christ. And we ask, Lord, for not only opportunities to share the gospel with them, but we know that all the words and all the reasoning in the world will do nothing if your spirit does not work to open the eyes of their hearts. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would go before us to open the eyes of these people's hearts. Father, you know the people that we have in mind. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would be at peace with you through faith in Christ alone. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and courage to share your gospel wherever we go